0: In this episode, we chat with Peter Brodsky, co-founder and CEO of HyperScience, a company which has transformed the way organizations ingest and parse data. Peter shares with us his various insights on data technology, business, and leadership. He's a cerebral CEO who has approached scaling in his own unique and effective way. We chat about the value of a great early investor, striving for an authentic culture and leadership style and how perseverance is most often the secret to success. Hyperscience has raised over $190 million from investors including Tiger Global, Vesmer Venture Partners, and FirstMark. We hope you enjoy the show. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you today. I'd like to kick off, actually, with this podcast is is about scaling businesses. It's also about interactions and partnerships with investors so, I'd actually like to kick off with hearing a little bit about your experience with investors and how they've been able to add value kind of just beyond providing capital, but adding value in other ways. Hopefully, we can start there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Our very first investor, Jenna Fisher, invested at a time when everybody said no. Like, I must have pitched about 100 different people. I was terrible at pitching, by the way. Uh, I don't think anyone really starts out good, or very few people are naturally born good, you know, fundraisers. And so it's definitely a skill that I I had to pick up, but I didn't pick it up by the time Shanna said yes. Shanna took the time to really dig in and understand what it was that we were trying to do. Nobody else would. You know, people just heard a poorly articulated vision, a poorly told story, and basically would ask me to leave their office. (laughs) Shanna said yes when no one else would. And that in and of itself was different. And what happened next, I could never have predicted or expected from any investor. She took the time to help me get good at fundraising. People who had previously unceremoniously rejected our company were suddenly clamoring to invest, treating it as if it were a privilege. And that was all within the first couple months of having Shanna invest in the company. But... What continues to stand out, and it's been like eight years, you know, what continues to stand out is the way that she's just different from most other VCs. She acts much more like a co-founder than a VC. She roots for your success rather than just the company's success. In the beginning, those two things are very much the same, but over time, they're not. They diverge. They're different. And she's truly committed to my growth and my development, always has been. And, you know, sometimes something crosses her mind. She calls me up and says, you know, hey, Peter, do you think about this? Uh, if not, I should maybe be thinking about it. I really, really like that. I'm very, very grateful to ever be a part of
0: this. That's fantastic. And now switching gears a little bit for the benefit of our audiences, tell us a little bit about hyperscience. This kind of uh, whole area of kind of automating the way folks work with data and, and making a whole lot more efficient. Tell us why companies choose to use hyperscience.
1: Yeah. So when you think about the problem that we solve, it affects almost every single large organization. Companies do a tremendous amount of stuff by hand, both in the back office and in the front office. And our goal is to automate every single step of every single business process, of every single vertical, but, You know, as long as it's knowledge work, right? We, we don't get involved with in physical. To some extent, we are not committed to automating any, anything 100%. We think that it's important to deliver as much automation as possible, but also recognize that sometimes automation has its limits. And it's really that marriage of human and mechanical labor that we think enables modern workforces to be vastly more productive than they otherwise could be. It's the difference between digging with spoons and a bulldozer. There's, There's still a person involved, of course, but you could accomplish so much more when much of your work is automated. And we automate a lot of the business processes that we're involved in to the tune of 95%. So very, very high levels of automation. But we recognize that there's still five percent in a lot of cases where you need a human involved. And that I think is a appealing value proposition for the vast majority of companies out
0: there. Yeah, and while applicable, you know, across the board to all sectors, it seems like you have some strongholds in insurance, healthcare, and broader finance. Are there kind of some case studies where you know your solution has worked out? particularly well for company, kind of automated a significant portion of their operations?
1: Well, we're a very horizontal company. And so the answer is yes, but it's a large set of things, be it onboarding new customers, account maintenance, underwriting, claims, procurement, mortgage origination. You know, we work with companies in insurance, healthcare, finance, government, energy, logistics, BPOs. really, you name it. Like I said, this is a very wide-ranging problem where so much of the work that is done inside companies is really done by hand. And it's the kind of work that is not particularly creative or rewarding and error-prone. And so if you can automate it and do it better, faster, cheaper, then you really ought to. I think that's how our, our customers are looking at it as well.
0: And switching over to scale and how you've been able to scale the company, What we frequently hear is that ability to kind of build a great cohesive culture is paramount. How do you approach building a strong culture, particularly today when when a lot of the work is being done remotely or there's some hybrid environment? You know, have you kind of uncovered some key insights into how you can maintain a strong culture?
1: I think there are a couple of things. I don't know that I have any special insights but when you think about the nature of the work that we do and the nature of the product that we build, it is foundational. It affects the very fabric of society. When you are an a fender bender, you rely on your car to get to work. Not having your car repaired is actually a serious inconvenience. We make that process go faster. We make sure that your car gets repaired faster. That doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's, you know, it's, it's a large inconvenience. And it scales all the way up to life and death matters. When you need a disability check because you've been hit by a car, you're the sole provider for your family, you're still alive, but you're incapacitated, medical bills are mounting, you're behind on rent. What you need, you need a disability check. What you can't have is a long delay in that process. And unfortunately, a lot of people really suffer because that process isn't faster. So when we can expedite it, it literally, in a literal sense, it literally saves lives The same is true for applications in healthcare. And even when we're talking about sort of everyday mundane things, like not having an error on your driver's license that sort of throws a kink into your life, it's annoying, it's not the end of the world or anything, but it's at that very foundational sort of basic fabric of society layer that we operate. And so I think that alone draws a lot of very like-minded people into the company. Beyond that, culture is, is always challenging, but I think... What's critical is that you are consistent with your own self. It's very hard, I think, to build a culture that you yourself don't believe in. And as long as you are truly consistent with your own self, I think you can have a pretty good go of it. You're, of course, limited by your own failings as a human being. And so you're constantly trying to understand where your own views are not quite the way that they ought to be and whether or not they they should change. And I've had a, a number of in the moment, they're painful, then embarrassing, then funny experiences where you're completely certain that you're right. And then you realize, of course, that you're totally wrong and you've been wrong the whole time. And so occasionally, you know, you'll have to change who you are because there's there's something not quite right about the way that you are. But I think as long as you strive for both those things, you, you probably can build something that isn't the worst place in the world to work, which is what we strive for.
0: I noticed we share something in common and that we both attended Cornell, and, and there's been a good number of entrepreneurs, of course, not me included, in that who attended Cornell. Was there something that you think was particularly helpful? Maybe you didn't realize it at the time, but it panned out later on. That you're kind of grateful you, you met someone at Cornell or you picked up some something you learned.
1: Oh, uh, I mean, that is a very open-ended topic. What I will say about Cornell, because I originally hadn't intended on going there, as sort of a it's a long convoluted story about how I wound up at Cornell. What I ended up loving about it was that it was a very broad cross-section of stuff that is really hard to find elsewhere. Like if you look at Columbia uh, school here in New York, where I live, you could never accomplish what Cornell accomplished just by virtue of the fact that it's in, in the city. Cornell had a Department of Pomology an entire department dedicated to the study of growing apples as part of the agriculture school. You obviously aren't going to have anything quite like that here. And I think seeing people who wanted to be farmers studying alongside people who were literally involved in the construction of the Mars rover, like otherworldly and very much thisworldly. Two totally opposite ends of that spectrum, all in the same place. I think that that was special, and I think our company sort of has a bit of that DNA in it. It's a very broad cross section of people that work here.
0: Couple questions that I typically like to ask, you know, about challenging times you face. We we do have a fair amount of entrepreneurs and and or aspiring entrepreneurs and CEOs that listen to these podcasts. Can you tell us about a challenging time and how you kind of survived it? And you look back and you think, can't believe I, I was able to get through that?
1: Yeah. I mean, running a, a startup is really about going from one existential crisis to the next. So if you want to run a startup, you should be prepared for nothing but calamitous events, company threatening events, because that's all there really is. It, it is truly one existential crisis after the next. And Even if it isn't, like even if things have gotten materially better, it sort of stays that way in your mind. It's very hard to shake that. There's always the biggest problem that you're facing. I don't know that I have any particular guidance other than just keep going. But that guidance needs to be tempered, of course, by the other guidance, which is keep going unless you should. (laughs) There's, There's no shame in quitting. And sometimes you have hit a dead end. And I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the earlier stages, where it's very clear the idea is not working out for any number of reasons. People talk about product market fit, but there's also founder product fit. And sometimes that's just not there and it's it's never going to be there. It's totally okay to quit. Uh, you don't need to ruin your life to prove a point. But as long as you're onto something that is worthwhile and you want it to succeed, I, I think the, the key is just to keep going. Unfortunately, I don't think it's I have anything more intelligent to say, nor am I sure that there's much more to it than that. Perseverance is a very large part of it
0: um and you probably run in kind of circles of CEOs peers that are building companies and i wondered is there someone who you think of very highly that you try to emulate in terms of leadership style
1: i generally don't spend too much time looking at what other CEOs do or say you can only be you and i can only be me and i spend much more of my time thinking about how do i be a slightly better version of myself over time. And I take my inspiration not from people who are already very much like me, doing very similar things. Although certainly the world is full of people who are vastly better CEOs than I am. But I I don't think I have as much necessarily to learn from them as I do from people from unrelated fields. Again, sort of going back to your question about Cornell. And I was never in the Department of Agriculture, but being exposed to that I learned so much because just the amount of novelty that there was available to me there was was much greater than just by hanging around other people who were studying the same kinds of things that I was. And I think the same is true professionally. We've talked about this a little bit before, but the kinds of people I generally look up to and draw inspiration from are in very unrelated fields. And DeGrasse Tyson is certainly one who I think has a lot of valuable lessons to teach any CEO really, or any leader for that matter, uh, because that's really what he is. He's certainly a scientist and you know, has a background in physics, but I think the way that I experience him is through his ability to explain very complicated things that are completely inaccessible to someone like me and get me excited about them. He can get me really excited about black holes, and black holes are these very abstract things. Like the, I don't know if you saw recently, there's there a picture of a black hole. It was a phenomenal scientific accomplishment, and I don't want to diminish it in any way, But to the layperson, to someone like me, it was honestly a bunch of orange blurred pixels. Like It wasn't exactly a spectacular image. And so it's this very abstract thing, and he makes it fascinating and accessible. And I think that in some ways, that's what leadership is. It's about taking something that is inaccessible, something that that you know or have some special insight into, and making it fun and exciting and accessible to people who don't necessarily have the the same background that, that you do to understand it. I feel the same way about movie makers and writers and musicians. They all manage to inspire and communicate in ways that, uh, well, I think are useful to any leader.
0: Last question, because I can see we're coming up on time here. But last question is, what's your ultimate goal with hyperscience? You know, we've had folks on before that have said, I'd love to be running this company when I'm 60 years old. And I just love what I'm doing. I wouldn't mind it being a small company, and but well-known and well-respected. And then there's others that are, I guess, more thoughtful about the near term and doing something more, I guess, methodically. Do you have kind of the big vision of what you'd like to do?
1: I think you have to earn the right to pursue a big vision. And you earn it quarter over quarter, year over year, by consistently delivering real value to customers. If we do that, if we are successful in delivering value to customers then our journey takes us from automating parts of large companies' business processes to allowing them to define their entire business process on top of library science to changing the way that labor is managed and organized. In the history of history, all of labor has been organized hierarchically. About eight groups of eight will report to a boss, and then eight of those bosses will report to the next boss, and then eight of those bosses will report all the way up to you you reach the CEO. And it's the way that every single major project has ever been organized, from the pyramids to the iPhone. Every single one of those projects was hierarchically organized, never mind that the pyramid is itself a hierarchy of sorts. We have an opportunity to upgrade a social technology that has never been upgraded in the history of history, namely labor organizations. And we think that humans can collaborate not only with machines, but also with each other through non-hierarchical means, through the assistance of an automation platform like ours. In many ways, that's already true today. Hyperscience trains and assigns work and monitors and measures performance. And so we do a lot of this today. It's real, but it's very, very small scale and has yet to really have any kind of impact on the world. And I think that if we continue to be successful, we have the opportunity to be involved in some of the most important work of our lives. So that's where I hope we go. But we have to earn it. And that's what the near term is about.
0: Got it. Well, thank you for that. Peter, want to thank you again for taking the time and, and sharing your experience and insights with us. I, I know our audience will find this very helpful. So thank you.
1: Thanks for having me here, too.